Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This audio will take us in the book of Mark, starting with Mark chapter 14, verse 10. We're going to do at least two incidents. One is we're going to talk about Judas' conspiracy with the chief priest and the temple police in order to in order to arrest Jesus. And then we're going to talk about Jesus and disciples preparing for the Passover. And then finally, we'll take up the incident at the Lord's Supper where Jesus points out his betrayer to the rest of the apostles. The context of this is the meal with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. That had occurred on Tuesday night. Judas Iscariot leaves that meal, and either on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, he makes his nasty deal with the chief priest, either on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. And then on Thursday, Thursday morning and afternoon, Peter and John, the disciples prepare the Passover to be eaten that night, which was Thursday night. And, of course, that night Jesus didn't sleep any because he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, was arrested, and was killed on Friday midday. So that's our context. We'll start with Mark chapter 14, verses 10, and we'll read verse 11 too. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them, betray Jesus to the chief priest. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Why were they glad? Well, because now they didn't have to figure out how to arrest Jesus without inflaming the crowds. The crowds were completely protecting Jesus, and the Pharisees knew it. They were outnumbered. There were something like 200,000 people there because of the Passover pilgrims. The normal population was about 50,000. And so they, the, the enemies of Jesus had a hard problem on their hands, and Judas solved it for them. Oh, we can seize him now secretly so that nobody will know. And, of course, that's because Judas was going to tell them where Jesus was, and then they were going to come get him. Clark says this about the chief priest being glad, quote, The joy that arises from the opportunity of murdering an innocent person must be completely infernal. Hey, they were. These were really bad guys in the truest sense of the word. Moving on, Matthew, um, we're moving to our parallel passages here. Let's talk about that. Matthew 26, 14 through 16 tells the same story of Judas's complicity with the chief priest and it adds one detail is that the amount of money that Judas dealt for was 30 pieces of silver the famous 30 pieces of silver so let's talk about that in Matthew 26 starting with verse well we'll read from 14 to 16 then one of the 12 the man called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you so they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now, 30 pieces of silver, according to my NIV study Bible, is equal to 120 denarii, which is 120 days wages. So Jesus, the Son of God, was betrayed for four months wages. That's how much Judas Iscariot valued him for. It was also the price of a slave, as is often pointed out by such as John Gill and Adam Clark. Here's a quote from John Gill, quote, Maimonides observed, Maimonides is the famous Jewish medieval scholar, Maimonides observes that the atonement of servants or slaves, whether great or small, whether male or female, the fixed sum in the law is 30 shekels of good silver. Whether the servant is worth 100 pounds 
or whether he is not worth but a farthing. So it was a set price for a slave. So when you heard, when somebody heard 30 pieces of silver, it's that's the price of a slave. One wonders whether the chief priests were deliberate, deliberately did that when they paid him 30 pieces of silver. They said, well, he's, he, all he is is a slave as far as we're concerned. That's what he's worth. We'll give you 30 pieces of silver. And Judas, probably feeling like his life was not worth too much now because he was in a losing cause, probably figured, well, it's better than 30, silver, 30 pieces of silver than getting nothing or than, or than getting killed. So he betrays Jesus. Now, this 30 pieces of silver is often said by scholars to fulfill Zechariah 11:12, which says this, Then I said to them, If it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you go back and look at Zechariah, it's, it, as often when you look at how prophecy is fulfilled, it seems like it doesn't really fit. The context doesn't fit. I'll worry about that when I get to Zechariah in the next several years, when I finally get there. But just to say right now, the 30 pieces of silver is mentioned in Zechariah 11, verse 12. By the way, pieces of silver is actually coins of silver, according to the NIV Study Bible. Now, why did Judas show up at this time? Probably because he was at the the meal in Bethany on Tuesday night where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were and where Mary anointed Jesus with oil, his head and his feet with oil. And remember, Judas Iscariot complained that nard, that valuable perfume, was worth 300, more, 300 plus denarii, and you wasted it. He was motivated by greed and his lust for money. And in John's account of that, of that meal where Jesus' head and feet were anointed by Mary. John says this in John 12, verse 6. He, Judas, didn't say this, this complaint about wasting the money and feeding and helping the, about wasting the nard on Jesus' head rather than selling it and giving money to the poor. He, Judas, didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Notice that Judas was never an open enemy of Jesus. He just stabbed Jesus in the back when he had the chance. Total hypocrite on his face. He's following Jesus, one of the 12 disciples. Meanwhile, while he's trying to betray him, that's why he's got a name, the name, the reputation as the worst traitor in all of history. That's why his name is a proverb. Don't be like a Judas to me. Everybody knows what that means. He's worth, if you're an American, of course, Benedict Arnold is another big traitor, but Benedict Arnold doesn't hold a candle to Judas as far as treachery goes. He's named Judas Iscariot always, which is nice because there was another Judas who was one of the twelve, and of course he didn't. Another one of the twelve, that other Judas didn't was not involved. John Gill says that he's that Matthew mentions that he's one of the twelve. Then one of the twelve, capital T twelve, was to emphasize the enormity of the betrayal. He was one of Jesus's closest companions. Notice that Judas was not provoked. He was not approached by the Pharisees to betray Jesus. He did it on his own. Judas says, what, what do you want to pay me so I can hand him over? Judas voluntarily, under no pressure, betrayed Jesus. Gill says this was, quote, a barbarous and shocking betrayal. Notice that G Judas went to Caiaphas' house. Well, actually, it doesn't say he went to Caiaphas' house. We can assume that he went to Caiaphas' house where the chief priests were consulting. It says in an earlier passage in Mark, actually, that they were there trying to figure out what to do with Jesus, and Judas shows up. Now let's turn to Luke. We pick up another detail here in Luke, starting in verse Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 3, and going through 
verse 4. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priest and temple police how he could hand them over to him. Well, here we have a little detail that the temple police were there with the chief priest in Caiaphas's house. The temple police, of course, are going to have to be the people that arrested Jesus. They were Levites who were doing their service in the temple. They were kind of like security guards. And so they were going over elaborate plans. How are we going to, how are we going to get Jesus without the crowd knowing? It also says here in verse 3 in Luke 22 that Satan entered Judas. Now, the NIV study Bible points out that that happened twice. It happened here during the conspiracy with the high priest and also at the Last Supper. John 13 verse 27 says this, After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Therefore, Jesus told him, What you're doing, do quickly. So, it doesn't mean that Satan entered Judas and totally possessed him and turned him into a zombie. What it means is Judas had given himself over to Satan's will, and so Satan says, good, let's go get the job done. This, by the way, should always be emphasized. Satan never enters into a human being without that human being first giving him permission. Otherwise, there would be no such thing as human responsibility. Judas was entirely responsible for Satan entering into him. It was his fault. He couldn't say, oh, I didn't kill Jesus. The devil made me do it. He couldn't pull a Flip Wilson. So entered is not in the full sense. He's, he was not totally demonically possessed. He was not a zombie. All right, so the conspiracy is done. We next we turn to the next incident in Mark 14, starting in verse 12, going through verse 16, and that is the preparation of the Last Supper meal. I will read now Mark 14, 12 through 16. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, Where is the guest room for me to eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, enter the city, and found it just as he had told them as they prepared the Passover. Now, just real briefly here, to pick, just to get us oriented. When is this? It is Thursday. Now, immediately we have a problem. Mark chapter 14, verse 12 says, On the first day of unleavened bread. Now, if you recall from Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23, it says that the Passover, the first day of Passover, the day of Passover is Nisan 14, which this, in the year of Jesus' death was on Thursday. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was the seven days that followed the, uh, Nisan 14, the day of Passover. And so the first day of Unleavened Bread was Nisan the 15th, which would be Friday. Now, the Passover lamb was sacrificed on the 14th. But Mark says on the first day of Unleavened Bread, which would be the 15th, going by Leviticus, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. They don't sacrifice the Passover lamb on the first day of Unleavened Bread. That's the 15th of Nisan. They sacrifice it on the 14th day of Nisan. Well, that's extraordinarily confusing unless you know Jewish customs then, as the NIV Study Bible points out, that the custom had arisen by then because those two feasts were so close together that the day of Passover, the first day and the next seven days, were lumped together in the popular mind. That eight-day period was called unleavened bread. Sometimes it was called Passover too, by the way. They just lumped them all together and called it by one title. So when Mark is saying on the first day of unleavened bread, he means on the first day of that eight-day period, 
which the Jews called unleavened bread. And that eight-day period included the first day, which was 14th of Nisan, Passover. So it was on Thursday that the Peter and James, uh, Peter and John, the two disciples who were tasked to prepare the Passover meal, it was on Thursday that they did so. So that's the first thing we've got to get straight. Notice that there's a guest room that Jesus says that you go to find a guest room when you leave Bethany and go into Jerusalem. It was very usual for Jews to have a guest room in their house, and they would put up pilgrims who came for the Passover feast. That was the custom, as my NIV study Bible points out. And so that's why there would be a, a guest room there. Now, Jesus says, how do you know where to go to the disciples? We find out in Luke, by the way, we know it's Peter and John. Not, uh, not, the, the disciples are unnamed in Mark, but it's Peter and John. How do Peter and John know where to go find this house with the guest room? Well, you'll see a man carrying a water jug. Well, now, how did Jesus know that the man would be carrying a water jug? Well, some people say, like Adam Clark, that is because of his supernatural prescience. Only women carried water jugs, and Jesus knew that there was going to be a man carrying a water jug at a certain time, and the disciples were going to run into him, and that would be the sign. Well, that could be, but it also could be that Jesus knew the man and his habits. He picked a disciple in Jerusalem, somebody who loved him, and he knew this disciple, and he knew that water would have to be gotten to bake the unleavened bread for Passover. That water could not be gotten on the next day, Friday, because that was a Sabbath day, the first day of, of the of unleavened bread proper. The 15th of Nisan was a, was a Sabbath day, so he couldn't get the water then, so it would have to be on Thursday. And so he knew, he figured the disciples would, would meet him. But still, the problem with that is, is how do you know that the disciples are going to show up just at the same time he's getting the water jug? So I suspect it was supernatural. Notice that it was a man carrying a water jug, and that man is distinguished from the owner of the house. The owner of a house would not be carrying a water jug, only a, a servant would. Notice how that Jesus tells Peter and John to greet the owner when the servant carried, carried them to the owner, that they were supposed to greet the owner this way. The teacher says, well, that makes it sound like the teacher is capital T teacher. In fact, Home of Christian Study Bible has it a capital T teacher. In other words, the teacher that you are following as, as a disciple. In fact, some people speculate it was Joseph of Arimathea. Some people, Robertson speculates it was John Mark's mother and father's house. It's another speculation, too, and I forgot what it is, of uh, who this house could belong to, another disciple's house. But it's all speculation. We don't know. But the disciples went out, entered the city. They came from Bethany, entered into Jerusalem. Bethany is about, what, a couple miles across the Kidron Valley to the east of Jerusalem. And they found the house just as Jesus had told them. And then they prepared the Passover. In the parallel passage in Matthew 26, verses 17 through 19, there are no extra details, but I would like to mention, I don't think I emphasized it enough, that the reason that the disciples would know which man to follow is because it was unusual for a man to be carrying a water jug. So that stuck out, and it was probably supernatural that Jesus knew the disciples would run into the man at a certain time. Nicodemus, that was the other possible speculation as to who owned that house. Nicodemus, the famous man in John chapter 3, what must, what must I do to be born again? He, and he 
help prepare the body for burial and all. You know, the, the, the follower of Jesus in the Sanhedrin could have been him. We don't know. Now, what did Peter and John do to prepare the Passover once they got to Jerusalem? Well, John Gill, our Jewish expert, says that here's what you would have to do. They would have to buy a lamb. They would have to carry it to the temple so that the priest or a, a priest could slay it in the court of the temple. Then the, I guess the worshiper flayed the lamb, not the priest, but the, they had to skin the lamb. Then the priest had to put it on the altar and and roast the meat, roast lamb. Oh, that sounds so good. Then the priest would sprinkle the blood at the foot of the altar and then give it to Peter and John. They would bring the meat to the house of the man carrying the water jug. And then they would have to go out into the city and buy bread and wine and bitter herbs and the ingredients for the charseth sauce, which is the traditional Passover sauce. So there was a lot of work to be done. So they're doing this Thursday while the rest of the disciples, except for Judas, and Jesus were in Bethany. Now, why was Jesus going to all this trouble to try to find a particular house to, to have the Passover meal, the Last Supper in? It could be that he had made previous arrangements with the owner, as the NIV Study Bible says. But at any rate, he wanted a place where the Passover meal would not be interrupted. It, people seeking healing could have come and overwhelmed the, Jesus' last meal with his, his disciples. Judas could have found him. And I'm sure Jesus by now knew that Judas was out to get him. But since Judas didn't know where the Passover meal was going to be held because he because he had left the disciples' company on Tuesday night. And then after he, he left, Jesus says, Peter and John, go find a place where the Passover is going to be. Judas didn't know anything about this. He was too busy conspiring with the chief priest and the temple temple police. So knowing having a secret place for the Passover would protect Jesus from Judas. Now, let's go to the parallel passage in Luke 22. And I'm going to just make one minor point here. Starting in verse 8, Luke 22, verse 8, we read this. Jesus sent Peter and John, and that's how we know who the two disciples were who were doing the preparation. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover meal for us so we can eat it. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked him. So here we have the command to go prepare and by Jesus. And the question asked of Jesus by the disciples is, where do you want us to prepare it? But in Matthew, we have, and Mark also, we have the command, we have the question of the disciples first in Matthew and Mark, and then the command second. I don't think that's a big deal, but I just pointed out to you, the timing is not precisely maintained by the synoptic gospels all right so now we're finished with the preparation and now we're going to look at third what happened thursday night when jesus started took the last supper the pa the passover meal with his 12 apostles now there's a lot that happens at the last supper and some of the events of the last supper are covered by all four gospels so what I'm going to try to do is just try to emphasize the parts of the Lord's Supper that are emphasized by Matthew and Mark. Luke adds a whole ton of stuff, and John does also. But we'll just start to stick, just to, to keep the problem within bounds, we'll stick with Mark and Matthew. So Mark chapter 14, verse 17 says this. 
I'll read through 21. When evening came, this is Thursday evening, 14th of Nisan. And remember, the Jews, their day started at sundown. So when evening came, we we switched from the 14th of Nisan to the 15th of Nisan. It's still Thursday, but it's Thursday night. So that's the 15th of Nisan. When evening came, he, Jesus, arrived with the 12. That means arrived to the guest room in the man's house who had the servant with the water jug. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, I assure you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. At this juncture, let me point out that Luke tell, uh, says that at the meal, there was a big dis- discussion about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. You know, that never stops. <laughs> and uh, and Jesus said, you need to be a ruler like a child and like a slave. In other words, as people with no authority. Great passage there, and that's in Luke 22. And then John, the apostle John in John chapter 13, mentions that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples at that last supper. A lot of stuff going on, which we'll cover when we get to Luke and John. So now let's look at one incident of the Last Supper, the when Jesus points out that Judas was his betrayer. Again, this is Thursday night, Jewish Friday. We'll look at my notes on Mark 14, 17 to 21 very briefly. Then I'm going to turn to Matthew, Luke, and John. There's three parallel passages here that discuss this incident of Jesus pointing out his betrayer. First of all, we see that Jesus says to the 12 apostles, I assure you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. That sounds just like a incidental detail, one who is eating with me, but actually that shows the enormity of the betrayal because of the culture back then. Eating was a salient feature of Eastern hospitality, and violating Eastern hospitality was about as bad as sexual immorality. You just didn't do it. King James here says, one of you shall betray me, even he that eateth with me, to show that it's it's one thing to betray somebody, but to, but for somebody who is your closest, who is one of your closest companions, one of the twelve, who is eating an intimate meal, which was actually not just an ordinary meal, but it was a Passover meal, the last Passover that Jesus would ever eat with his disciples, and that's when he's going to get betrayed. Judas, when he did betrayal, he did it upright. It was the worst betrayal in the history of the human race. Now, if we look at the parallel passages, Matthew 26, 21 through 25, it reads exactly, almost exactly as the Mark passage reads. It does add one little detail in verse 22, Matthew 26, verse 22. It says, they were exceeding sorrowful in the King James or deeply distressed in the Holman Christian Study Bible. They were very, very upset that one of them was going to betray Jesus, and that's quite understandable. That's one little detail. Other than that, the passages are exactly the same. So I'll go through here and we'll discuss this in more detail. First of all, the scripture says that Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. Mark says that and Matthew says that with the twelve. That means Judas was back with the disciples having left the place of conspiracy with the Jewish high priest. Now why? Had, did, was it necessary for him to come back and eat that last supper? 
Well, he needed to do that in order to carry out his plans. He needed to avoid suspicion so that the other apostles would not know that he had done something dirty, and they did. They had no idea. When Jesus start, tried to point out to them who this betrayer was, they were shocked. They didn't know who it was. Judas needed to get intelligence of where Jesus would go after the supper, so he had to go to the Last Supper so he could hear where they planned to go after they finished eating. He's looking for the best time that he could find to betray Jesus to the priest so that the crowd would not know. Another detail here, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. This was the custom of the Jews at Passover. Gwil, John Gill, quoting a rabbi, says that in all other nights, we, this is the rabbi speaking, we eat either sitting or lying along, that is which way we please, but this night all of us lie along, all of us recline. So it was a special way of eating the Passover is reclining. Actually, the first Passover in Egypt was eaten standing up, as the NIV Study Bible and Gill point out. Exodus 12:11. here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. They didn't follow that tradition here at the Last Supper. Now, Jesus told the disciples, one of you will betray me. I assure you, one of you will betray me. Now, actually, Jesus had already told them that. In Matthew 20, verse 18, this is before, on his, near the end of his Galilean ministry, before he had gotten down to Jerusalem, Jesus told his apostles, Listen, we are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. Handed over means somebody had to do it. Somebody had to hand it over. So it's kind of a oblique hint that Jesus would be betrayed. Matthew 26, 2, this is, at, this is right before the the meal in Simon the leper's house and right after the Olivet Discourse while Jesus is in Bethany with his apostles. He says this, You know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So it sounds like it's going to be a betrayal. It's a hint. But it's such a hint, the disciples were hard picking up on, I mean, they couldn't understand the fact that even he would even be killed. It was hard for them to understand this. John Gill claims that Peter and John were, were two alone of the disciples who actually understood what Jesus meant. Now, I don't know why he would say that. It seems to me that none of them understood it. But at any rate, this must have been caused quite a shock at what must have been otherwise a happy occasion. Should have been, it wasn't, but it should have been a happy occasion, a Passover meal eaten with the Lord. Instead, he's under the shadow of death and betrayal. Now, Mark says the disciples were distressed, and Matthew says they were deeply distressed. Why? Well, first of all, that Jesus would be betrayed just in general, that he would be betrayed by anyone, but especially they were distressed that one of the disciples, that band of brothers who had been traveling all through Israel for three and a half years or so, one of them was going to betray Jesus. Now, some of the disciples might have been distressed because they're thinking, well, what if it's me? What if I, what if I wilt? in the face of the coming persecution that Jesus has told us about. Maybe some of the disciples were questioning their manhood. Maybe that's why they were distressed. Or I think it's most probably the fact that the idea of Jesus being betrayed, that fact in itself was enough to just wipe them out because they thought he was the coming Messiah. And then to top it off, to be betrayed by one of his own, that thought was so horrible, so hideous, it was unthinkable. They couldn't think it. Now, Judas, in the midst of all this distress, you could imagine he was probably acting like he was distressed. He was probably foolish enough to think that Jesus couldn't figure out who betrayed him. So he's going to sit there and pretend, oh, Jesus, that's terrible. Somebody's going to betray you. Now, this is the same Jesus that 
made the blind see and raised people from the dead. And this is what is incredible to me. Judas saw all that. He saw all these incredible miracles. And he says, well, I'm going to betray him. What an idiot. Jesus replies on how he is going to point out the one who betrayed him. He's going to say, he says this in Matthew 26, 23, the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. Now, the NIV study Bible says it was the custom to take bread or meat wrapped with bread and dip it into a bowl of sauce. And apparently, I think they dipped it and handed it to other people as a sign of fellowship of eating closely together. I know in China, which is an eastern country, and a lot of these customs, I can see parallels between the ancient Near East. In China, people were always grabbing food off of somebody else's plate and putting putting it on your plate, and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, how sanitary is that? But they're thinking, oh, we're going to show respect to the foreigner. We're going to show him honor. A little cross-cultural differences in perception there. But at any rate, this is what this is. This is a, a, a symbol of fellowship, of intimacy, dipping your hand in the sauce. And what it was, dipping the bread, actually, into the sauce, dip. Jesus says dip his hand, but what he means is your hand is grabbing the bread and they put it into the bowl. And that bowl had a sauce made of stewed fruit, as the NIV study Bible says. Gill says the name of that sauce is the Charoseth sauce, and I might have pronounced it wrong. I got on the Internet and tried to pronounce it, and the Internet says Charoseth, and somehow I would think it would be Charoseth if it's Jewish. But anyway, the Charoseth sauce, it was... And it was not only unleavened bread that was dipped into that Charisus sauce, but also the bitter herbs that were there at the Passover meal. Charisus sauce, according to John Gill, was made of figs, nuts, almonds, and other fruits, to which they added apples. It sounds great, really. All which they bruised in a mortar and mixed with vinegar and put spices into it, calamus and cinnamon, in the form of small, long threads in remembrance of the straw that they had to mixed with the clay when they were slaves in Egypt. And it was necessary it should be thick in memory of the clay. Thick straws because of the clay and long charoseth, thick charoseth in memory of the clay and long charoseth in memory of the straw when they were slaves in Egypt. This was done twice at Passover, Gil says. Normally you only dipped once at a meal. Now here's a question. How is this a signal since everybody's going to be dipping into the charoseth sauce, not just Judas? John Gill says you solve that by saying that Jesus pronounced those words right as he was dipping with Judas. The one that dips his hand in the bowl with me, he will betray me. Of course, in Matthew 26, 23, you got a problem with that. It's got dipped in the past tense. I, don't, I haven't checked that. That might be aorist, in which case you can translate that as, as a... Aorist does not really indicate time. It indicates aspect. It meant like whether it's continuous or intermittent or a point in time. So it could be the one who dips at, at a point in time his hand with me in the bowl. He will betray me. Or it could be that G, that Jesus just waited until Judas, Judas stuck his hand in the bowl to dip, and then Jesus dipped his hand in the bowl at the same time to indicate it was Judas. Or it could be that Jesus not only dipped his hand into the bowl, with Judas at the same time, he could have been, he dipped his hand in the bowl, took the bread, and then handed it to Judas. And when he handed it to Judas, that was the signal that Judas was the betrayer, while the other apostles were dipping at separate times. And plus, there's usually more than one bowl on the table. There could have been two or three bowls. And Jesus just picked his time to dip at the same time that Judas dipped. And that told everybody there, well, it didn't tell everybody there. We'll see that it was basically... John and Peter who knew what was going on. We'll talk about that in a minute when we get to John. But it told them who the betrayer was. This dipping was probably a sign of special intimacy 
As Adam Clark says, in the East, persons never eat together from one dish, except when a strong attachment subsists between two or more persons of the same caste. After this dipping, Jesus points them out, and Judas headed out of Dodge. We'll see that in John. He left. Now, as the NIV Study Bible points out these Eastern eating customs, and they say this, that, uh, to eat with somebody is the same thing as saying, quote, I am your friend and won't hurt you. And that's the same as it is with Arabs even today. Psalm 41.9 says this, Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. And many people say that Judas fulfilled Psalms 41.9 prophetically. Jesus continues in Matthew 26.24. This passage is also in Mark. He says this, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, the Son of Man is Jesus' standard messianic title that he gave himself. In many previous audios, I've, given, I've gone through the derivation of the, uh, the etymology of that phrase. It's a slam dunk. It means, I'm the Messiah. He will go just as, as it is written about him. Where is it written that Jesus would go? Go where, by the way? Go to heaven by being killed. Leave the world to go to the Father. Where was it written about him thus? Isaiah 53 2b through verse 5, probably the suffering servant passage here. Let me read this. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. That's where it was written about him that Jesus would have to go. Psalm 22 verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? Just as the scriptures wrote about Jesus, that's the way he was going to his father. And then we can mention Daniel 9 26. The 70 weeks prophecy, and after those 62 weeks, that's 62 plus 7, mentioned earlier, after the 69th week, before the 70th week, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. Now, it's interesting, we haven't gotten to Luke yet, but Luke has that same phrase, the Son of Man shall go, but instead of saying as it has been written, it says as it has been determined, which shows that if you believe the Bible, that which has been written is the same thing as that which has been determined. That which God has written through the Holy Scripture is that which God has determined, because God knows the future, and of course he can determine things in the future. But he says, but woe to the man who it is being, he is betrayed. And when you talk about the old perennial free will and contingency and necessity discussion, free will versus predestined, free will plus a God's determination, God's sovereignty issue, you will see here that it was determined by God, but Judas was still responsible. God's determination of event does not deprive anybody of their moral responsibility to make moral free choices. That's to me, is the proves compatibilism, that God's sovereignty is compatible with a man's free will. If I decide right now to lift up my left hand, which I'm now doing, God determined that before the foundation of the world that I would lift my hand at that time. They go together. Jesus says it was better for that man if he had not been born. That was a common rabbinical saying. Actually, it's a phrase that Americans use all the time, too. Wish I hadn't been born. The idea being that it was a whole lot better not being born 
than spending an eternity in hell. Jesus wouldn't have used that phrase about Judas if there was any chance of Judas being redeemed from hell. The phrase wouldn't be true at all. This is for those people, those universal reconciliation shack people who think that everybody's going to get saved, which is absolute nonsense. Matthew 26:25 says this, Then Judas, his betrayer, replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, he told him. You have said it is just a way of saying You said it, bud. Yes. The answer is yes. So Jesus directly confronts Judas with his apostasy and betrayal. Up until that point, Judas was continuing his hypocritical charade. Oh, oh, surely not I, Jesus. Surely not I. He actually said that. Not only were the apostles saying that, but he said that. This is in this is only in Matthew chapter 26, verse 25. And Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Is it I, Rabbi? He saith unto him, Thou hast said it. Well, that's where I am right here. Judas was saying, Surely not I, Rabbi. He's, he's been a hypocrite to the very end. So now let's turn to, I'm not going to turn to Luke, because Luke, except for that determined, the fact that, that it was determined is how Jesus would go instead of as, as it was written. That was an interesting detail. But other than that, nothing is added. So let's go to John 13, where a good bit is added. Let's go to verse, let's see, John 13, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had said this, this was when he said, one of you will betray me. John says that he, Jesus, was troubled in his spirit and testified, I assure you, one of you will betray me. So this is interesting detail here. The other three Gospels, the Synoptics, did mention that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. This was an anguish. He was a human being. He didn't like being betrayed any more than you or I would. He was still grieved at the betrayal of a friend, as the NIV Study Bible says. Now, the question arises is, why would Jesus announce to the disciples that somebody was going to betray him? Adam Clark says maybe Jesus was trying to warn Judas so he would repent. Well, maybe so. Or maybe he was trying to warn the disciples. Judas, Judas could get them killed just as well as he got Jesus, Jesus killed. And Jesus is trying to say, you got to look out for this guy. Now, as we drop down further in John, or actually, as we look back three verses in John 13, Jesus says this, I am not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. So that was a hint that somebody was going to betray him. And now this makes it clear when he says, one of you is going to betray me. Probably only when Jesus said that in John 13, verse 18, it was only Judas who understood who Jesus was referring to. The other disciples are probably saying, what in the world is, is he talking about? John 13, verses 22 through 26 is completely unique to the four Gospels that describe this scene. So I'll read this. Verse 22 of John 13. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, He's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. Now, there's one thing I discussed earlier about how would the disciples know who was the betrayer because everybody's dipping the bread in the chariseth sauce? Well, the answer might be right here in verse 26 of John 13. Jesus said, He's the one I give the piece of bread to. The giving of the bread is going to tip everybody else off. 
this assumes that nobody else gives that Jesus would give bread to nobody to nobody else at the meal. Now here we have the little interplay between Simon Peter and John. John is probably sitting next to Jesus. Simon Peter is sitting next to John. Simon Peter is curious about who this person that could be betraying Jesus. So he motions to John, find out. And so John is sitting ne reclining next to Jesus with his head in front of Jesus' chest. So John, in verse 25, leans back against Jesus' chest and asks him, who is it? Jesus said, he's the one I give the bread to after I've dipped it. So John would know who it was. Not the rest of the disciples now, but John would know after the dipping who the betrayer was. It doesn't say that John leaned back and told Simon Peter, but you would think he did since Simon asked him to find out who it was that was going to betray. So I'm going to assume that happened. In verse 22, it says the disciples were uncertain which one he was speaking about. That shows that they had no idea. They had no suspicion of Judas. He completely covered up his evil nature until then so they must have thought at this point that the betrayal would not would be involuntary in other words a betrayal under pressure under persecution not for money so they were probably thinking you know one of us is going to yield to the persecution we're going to crack under pressure they, they didn't think that somebody would actually sell jesus out by the way it doesn't say john put his head on the on his breast it says the disciple whom jesus loved we assume that's john because john Modestly didn't mention his name as he wrote the gospel. Most everybody says that's John. This doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love the other disciples, as the NIV study Bible points out. It just means there was a special bond between Jesus and John. Just like something. It doesn't mean you don't love all the people in the world, but you got special friendships that you especially love. Notice that John identifies Judas in an unusual way. He says, He, Jesus, gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son's son. I don't know who Simon Iscariot was, but I bet he was ashamed of his son when he found out what he had done. The NIV Study Bible says that John used Judas Simon Iscariot's full name to record the solemnity of the moment. And also, and John Gill says it was also done to distinguish him from the other disciple who was named Judas. He wanted to make sure that the wrong Judas didn't get blamed for this horrible act of betrayal. Now, why do you think Simon wanted to know who and John also wanted to know who was going to portray Jesus. Perhaps they thought they might could stop the traitor from executing his plan. Of course, it was determined from the foundation of the world this was going to go through. The disciples didn't realize this. You know, Peter, shortly thereafter, sliced off the high priest's servant's ear, Malchus's ear, with a sword trying to stop Jesus' arrest. So they were still thinking about stopping the, the nastiness. Another reason they might wanted to know about who the traitor was, so the rest of them could be free from suspicion. They didn't want to have that horrible taint of treachery laid on them. So, John 13:27 says this: After Jesus ate the priest, after Judas ate the piece of bread, the piece of bread that Jesus had handed to him, Satan entered him. This is the second time that Satan's entered Jesus. He entered Jesus right before in. Luke 22:3, right before Judas went to conspire with the chief priest and the temple police. This was on Thursday before the meal, Thursday in the daytime. Satan entered him then, and now Satan entered him again when Jesus exposed Judas. As when Judas, Jesus let Judas know that Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. And as I said, I think I said this earlier, this does not mean that, that Judas was a zombie completely possessed by Satan. It just means that he gave Satan permission to do evil stuff in him. Jesus saying, what you're doing, do quickly. 
Jesus, Jesus is totally in control of the situation, as the NIV study Bible says. He would die as he directed, not as his enemies directed. So he says, okay, Judas, I know what you're going to do. Go do it. Just get it over with. Do it quickly. Gil says that Jesus was deriding Judas, having nothing to care about or fear from him. Just get out of here. Do what you're going to do. And it showed he would take no methods to prevent Judas. He was going to let the scripture be fulfilled, unlike Peter. Some say that this was a, because this was the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that that's why Satan entered into Judas because it was especially holy time. I, Adam Clark says this is an utter mistake. I agree. I don't think that has anything to do with it. What had, the reason Satan entered Judas is because Judas decided he was going to betray the Son of God. John 13:28 through 30. None of those reclining at the table knew why he had told them that told him this. In other words, do what you're going to do quickly. The rest of the apostles heard that and said, "What do you mean? Go do quickly. Do what quickly?" Verse 29, John 13. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, "Buy what we need for the festival, the Passover," or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the bread, piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. The fact that they thought that Jesus could be directing the treasurer, Judas, to give something to the poor shows that even as poor as they were, with no money, traveling around as itinerant ministers, they gave to the poor, which is a remarkable thing. They lived off charity, but they gave anyway, Adam Clark says. And that's the principle. I don't care who you are, what ministry you're in. If you, I remember I was at a church in China, a church I really liked. It was started by Westerners. had a lot of Chinese in it, of course. And... They constantly gave money to other missionaries. I never had seen that before. I said, whoa, you know, you're taking money in and you're giving it back out. I like that. And they and they had been cut off by their fundamentalist mission board because of the, the, the mission board's legalism and stupidity. And this church broke free of the law and found out about grace. And as a result, got all their money cut off. But God immediately gave them some other means of support. And they constantly given money to other missionaries. It's pretty remarkable. After receiving the piece of bread, verse 30 says, he, Judas, went out immediately, immediately because he knew his number was up. And it was night. What is that, just a incidental detail? It was night. Well, if you're literary, NIV Study Bible suggests then, it could have been more than a time note. It could have been in light of John's strong emphasis on the contrast between darkness and light. If you read, you know, of course, God is light, and in them there's no darkness at all. And if you walk in the light in the in the letters of John, you like that light metaphor. And maybe he was just saying, going along with his propensity to emphasize light versus darkness, he's saying this was particularly a dark time, betraying the Son of God. John Gill says this, quote, His was a work of darkness, Judas, was a work of darkness. The night was the fittest time for it, and it was a proper emblem of the blackness of the crime he was going to perpetrate. And Adam Clark says this, quote, Under the conduct of the prince of darkness and in the time of darkness, he did this work of darkness. Now, when it says none of those reclining at the table knew why he had told Judas, that why Jesus had told Judas, do what you do quickly, notice that that's not meant to be totally. It doesn't mean every, every last single one of them didn't know because obviously John knew. He, he leaned over and asked him, and, he, and John probably told Peter's, but at least John knew. But the rest of them didn't. And, of course, Judas knew, too. He knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. All right, that's the end of Judas's betrayal of... Uh, this is the end of Jesus pointing out that Judas would betray him at the Last Supper. We will continue with the Last Supper in our next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>